Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. We're going to jump right into it because we got a good chunk of scripture this morning. But before we get into it, this is the second to last week in our Clarity um, sermon series in the broader series that we're going through in the book of Mark. Uh, we're finding ourselves at this climactic time where next week is actually the summation or kind of the end of Jesus and his disciples' Galilean ministry. And then we start our next sermon series, which is the journey to Jerusalem, where Jesus heads to Jerusalem with his guys. And we all know what happens once he gets there, right? And so this is, this is big time here. Next week, we actually get to the point where Peter finally declares who Jesus is. It's like all of these bonehead interactions Jesus is having with his disciples and everyone else. And finally, next week, you guys, one of them gets it, kind of. <laughs> one of them gets it, kind of. We can relate. Uh, but this week, uh, we got about 26, 27 verses here um, where there's these four different stories that I believe God wants to teach us some specific things to bring clarity about his heart, how he works through Jesus, and what that means for us. And so today, the title of this message is Clarity, Eyes to See. Eyes to See. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26. 1 through 26. So you can read along with me in the usual ways, and uh, then we'll, we'll dig into this. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? We haven't seen anything like that happen before. How many loaves do you have here? Jesus asked them. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and so they did. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. After the disciples picked up the seven basketfuls of broken pieces, that were left over. About 4,000 were present. And after he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of, this is word split in half here, Dalmuthna, sorry. Uh, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. Once again, they show up on the scene to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back on the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring the bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread? And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? 
When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Then they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on them, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you desire to teach us, all that you desire for us to apply in our lives as we understand your heart for your people. Pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me to my family here this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Uh, one thing we need to recognize is just this, this um, theme of repetition, right? We're seeing certain things just happen over and over again. And repetition is a wonderful and effective teacher. Sometimes it takes one, two, maybe three attempts, and we still don't get it. If you're anything like me, maybe by the 11th attempt, it starts to sink in a little bit, right? If you have kids in the room, you understand that re repetition is a necessary function of teaching, mentoring, discipling. If you're a slow learner like me, uh, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged because we're in good company. The apostles here we see are just like us time and time again. They're just not fully getting it, right? They're just not fully getting it. Now here, Mark 8, uh, 1 through 30, which continues into next week, parallels what we read before in chapter 630 through 737. We have similar events recorded in the same order. We have the feeding of a great multitude. We have a boat trip, we have a confrontation with Pharisees, a conversation about bread, a miraculous healing, and then a significant confession, which we talk about next week. Now, I believe that Mark recorded these this way in terms of their history, but also in terms of their theology, especially in how it relates to discipleship. Now, remembering what we've seen the Lord do in the past should help him, should help us to trust him in the present. Amen? Like, well, that's why he's always telling the people of Israel throughout the Bible, it's like, remember, remember, remember what you've seen me do and operate out of that going forward. But unfortunately, we are sometimes forgetful and even hard-hearted. And we see that coming out of the disciples here as well. In spite of seeing the Lord work in our past, too many times we are not sure he can handle our present. In spite of seeing him work in our past, too many times we're not quite sure he can handle our present. We just don't seem to get it. And there are four events in today's scriptures that will prepare us for the great confession of Peter in verse 29 next week. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. There are four events this week that prepare us. And the first one is this. Here's what we learn in this first little section. Jesus always has a plan, but oftentimes we only see the problem. Can anybody relate to that? Like, okay, yeah, sure, Jesus has a plan, but this problem is very evident right now. We can tend to focus on the problem that we see in front of us rather than look to what plan he may have in it. 
It starts out saying, during those days, this informs us that this miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 likely took place in the Decapolis, which is where we were in the verses in the text from last week. This is important because it was an extension of the Lord's mission to the Gentiles, an extension of his mission to the Gentiles. Though there were likely some Jews present, he was mainly in Gentile territory, ministering outside of the borders of the normal uh, places of his ministry. And remember, he was communicating something about his heart for all nations, not just for the people of Israel, but for all people, that he came to be the savior of all. And this is an extension of that. Now, some skeptics over time have denied that there were two feedings. They think that Mark just got confused about the tradition and really there was only one feeding. However, it is clear that there is no confusion about this because Jesus even states in verses 19 and 20 that there were two feedings. So anything that you might read that's like, oh, maybe Mark was just confused and he was redundant about it. It's pretty clear there are two feedings. And it's important because they're trying to teach us about the breadth of Jesus's compassion. Jesus has a plan here. He wants us to see his concern for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. You see, last time that there was this miraculous multiplication of the food, of the bread and the fish, it was, it was in Jewish territory. It was with the people that everyone knew he was coming to be the Messiah too. And now, while he is most definitely the long-awaited Messiah for the Jewish people, He's also the savior of the world, and him doing this with the Gentile people is just another way of showing that, showing that he cares. You see, in chapter 6, verse 34, Mark said that Jesus had compassion in that feeding miracle because he acted compassionately. And Mark's observation was that, well, Jesus had compassion on them because he saw what he did. But now Jesus himself starts out and says, I have compassion on these people. He is stating that. He's going above and beyond to indicate his compassion on the people that are not viewed as the chosen people of God. He's making it clear that I have compassion also for these people. He would make no mistake as to his heart for the Gentile people, for all nations, or the representation of that term at this time. Jesus emphasizes that the crowd has nothing to eat. And he also says, if I send them home hungry, they might collapse. Because where are they going to get food? Like, we're we're way away. Some of them have come a long distance. What careful attention to their situation. He saw their need just as he sees yours and mine. He saw their need. You see, we can get caught up thinking that Jesus isn't concerned with the menial day-to-day things of our lives. Right? Like in this situation, maybe it's like, hey, the point is these people are with Jesus. So it's great. They're with Jesus. But no, he even cares about as they leave here, will they be hungry? Will they make it? Will they pass out from starvation along the way? He cares about every step of their journey and he gives provision in that and cares for that. So what in your life are you maybe saying, ah, yeah, you know, this is kind of something that's that's weighing on me right now. But I don't want to I don't want to bring that to Jesus because he's got bigger things to deal with. Can you relate to that at all? You don't want to bring the menial, the seemingly small circumstances to him, but he cares about everything you're going through. He sees it just as he saw it here with these people. He cares about the mundane things, the things that may seem just circumstantial, like where are we going to get our next meal? How are we going to pay our next bill? Well, in the grand scheme of things, you know, God's dealing with cancer and, you know, war and all this other stuff. Why does he care about that? He cares because he sees you. He loves you. He is your provider. 
in verses 4 through 7. It shows us how he provides. But he involves his disciples in this problem. He engages them in this. It's another teachable moment for him and his followers. So he calls the disciples to himself. He shares his heart for these people and explains the situation. And then the 12 respond with this question. It's not one of unbelief so much as it is of their bad location and lack of resources. So we can read this and be like, what's their problem? Didn't they just see this happen? And, and part of it is they're a little forgetful. They're not quite fully seeing who they are with and who Jesus is. But they're just, at this point, just stating the facts like many of us would. Like, well, they're hungry, Jesus, but how in the heck, are, what are we going to do about that? And the implication in this that many scholars believe in, in their tone and the rhetoric of this is that they're simply saying, Jesus, there's nothing we can do. You're the only one that can do anything about this. So, so what's next, right? It's just like, okay, I can't fix this. I don't have the means to go make some bread. We can't catch any fish. Lord, what are you going to do? And then Jesus moves into action. First, he finds out what's available. Then he seats the crowd down. He blesses the bread, and he gives it to the disciples to distribute. And then a few sardines are discovered, right? We read a few small fish were discovered, and he blesses them, and the, these newly created dead fish ready to be eaten are just spread out to all the people. And they're all, they all eat, and they're all satisfied. We saw that last time as well, right? It wasn't just like, hey, Jesus gave them just enough, and they were still hungry, but they weren't going to pass out on the way home. That's not what it says, like, hey, he got them by. It says they were satisfied. They were satisfied. They ate and they were filled. And this time they gathered leftovers, filling seven large baskets. And then Jesus sends them on their way home. Just another day in the life of Messiah Jesus. Taking some loaves, a few small fish, and feeding a ton of people, right? Just, a, just another day roaming around the, the desert. This is another sign that we see here of the establishment of God's kingdom. However, some of them still don't get it. It's still not sinking in. So let's move on to Act 2. We have this encounter with the Pharisees, right? And what we see happening here is that unbelievers will demand a sign but reject one when they see it. They'll demand a sign but they'll reject one when they see it. So we go right from this feeding of the 4,000 to Mark abruptly introducing another conflict with the religious Gestapo, if you will, right? The Pharisees. Now, we've been here before. We've seen in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, chapter 2, verses 16, 18, 24, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, verse 22, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, all of these conflicts with the Pharisees. And that's just in the gospel of Mark. We've been here before, but in spite of his numerous miracles and teachings that provide evidence that he is the Messiah, they reject what they see and what they hear. And they raise the stakes in their confrontation with Jesus. They just keep ramping it up. They're coming with this attitude of, of like, my mind is made up about this fellow Jesus. Let's not let the facts get in the way of my opinion. That's kind of the attitude that they're bringing. Like, ah, I already know this guy's, you know, whatever. They have their mind made up. I don't care about all this, these miracles and all these healings because I don't want to let that stuff get in the way of what I believe to be true about this person. Their posture is their minds made up. I don't want the experiences, the facts, what's actually happening to get in the way of that. So they test him. 
Mark says they began to argue with him, perhaps resuming the conflicts from chapters 3 and 7. Maybe it was a recurring thing. I don't know. I wasn't there. But the point is they're arguing. They're in conflict. There's tension between these religious elite and Jesus. And they ask him for a sign from heaven, something that would demonstrate to them, fulfill their appetite, showing that, uh, that he was truly doing this of God. Now, their motive in testing him wasn't that, hey, we want to, like, authenticate your ministry, right? They wanted to discredit him. They were trying to blow up his whole story, show everyone that he wasn't who he says he was and therefore wasn't a threat to their religious establishment. This was their goal all along, to test him, to discredit him and tear him down, not to authenticate or validate his ministry in any way. See, it's one thing to put the Lord to a test in faith, and it's another thing to test him out of unbelief and skepticism. It's completely different postures and ways of doing things. And there's a couple contexts that we see testing the Lord brought up in Scripture. And they're, they're, <laughs> they're pretty intense ones, so it's worth talking about a little bit. You see, when we talk about testing the Lord, there's plenty of verses that tell us, don't test the Lord. In fact, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, one of the things he does is he quotes back Deuteronomy 6 at him and says, do not put the Lord to the test. But then in Malachi, we read of this messenger messenger who is speaking to the Judean people who were in the temple, uh, but they'd strayed from true true worship, but he gives them these words from God in Malachi 3.10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. There might be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I'll not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Right? There, there's two different things where we see, like, I'm sure you've all heard these time and time again. Deuteronomy 6, don't put the Lord to test. And then you have the, you know, the proof text for generosity or one of them that you'll hear like test the lord like have faith walk this out in obedience and see if he won't just like blow your mind with his generosity and provision with his generosity and provision and then we see these pharisees continuing to test him there's a difference in testing the lord from a skeptical cynical posture trying to get him or trying to prove something false about him and testing him by walking something out in obedience and faith and seeing what he will do. There's a completely different heart posture here. Have you guys ever seen or participated in one of those high ropes courses, like those high ropes challenge courses they do for team building and summer camps and all those things? They're my best friend because gravity has little to no effect on me. Um, Just joking. But I I swear at every summer camp that I ever went to, it's like, come on, Chris, get on the high ropes course. Like, sure, I'll be your entertainment, right? So So you get up there, and oftentimes the final step of these high ropes courses is you're somewhere between 50 to 70 feet up, at least that was my experience on these various ones, is there's some sort of leap of faith. So maybe it's you jump off this pedestal and you try to grab like a a hanging bar and see if you can hold on. Maybe it's you jump and then a zip line takes you to the end of this course. There's various things, right? I'm sure all different ones have different things. But imagine stepping up to this final little leap of faith, if you will. And your heavenly father is staying there on the other side. He's like, hey, Chris, hey, Corey, hey, Melissa, whatever, whatever. I'm not going to go through all your names this morning, but hey, you, come on, jump to me. I got you. I got you. I'm going to catch you. I got you in this, right? And you come up and you're like, 
Yeah, right, God. Sure you do. You got me. And you go to the edge, right? And you jump with your arms out. And then as you're jumping, you pull them in along your side and you face your back to them, right? And like, ha ha, I got you. I showed you that you weren't really going to catch me, right? You have this like, I'm trying to disprove you. Like I'm working against you. I have this, this posture of skepticism. And you're just trying to prove that he's not going to do what he says he's going to do. That's the posture the Pharisees are, are taking this leap of faith or this interaction in. Now imagine I get up there and God's like, hey, Chris, jump to me. I got you. I'm like, okay, sure. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know if you're going to catch me by my hands, my feet, my neck, my shirt, my harness. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know that you're going to catch me and all this is going to work out for good. And you take that leap and you offer yourself out, walking it out with faith that he's going to care for you and protect you. That is the kind of testing the Lord that we read about in Malachi and that one of walking something out in obedience and faith looks like. Not the trying to work against him to try to discredit and disprove him. There's a total different heart posture in these different ways that we read about testing. So as you take leaps of faith in your life towards the Lord, what will be your heart posture? You just going to let me down again, God? Yeah, sure. I'll let everyone see how you're going to... Like, that attitude or <laughs> this is going to be one heck of a ride. I don't know what it's going to look like, but let's do this. Let's do this. And I know that it probably won't look like it does in my mind, but I know that you are good and that you are going to work this out. They test him, but it's not from a good place in the heart. <clears throat> we also see that these Pharisees grieve the Lord. For the second time in two chapters, our Lord sighs with deep emotion. Just sighs with this deep emotional projection of how he's feeling internally. And this time his anguish was directed at the minds that refused the evidence, the hearts that remained hard, the eyes that refused to see, and the ears that refused to hear. The ones that were pridefully and powerfully locked in spiritual blindness. Locked into spiritual blindness. In effect, what he's saying with this sigh is, you want a sign, read the scriptures. You want a sign so bad, know this word that you go around proclaiming and religiously enforcing. And if you cannot see God at work in me through those, then no evidence, no sign I'm going to give you will ever satisfy your desire to disprove me to discredit me. There is no sign good enough if you know your word and you're seeing God play out through my life. What, what else can I do? And he sees that and he just, this deep sigh, like, ah, my people. <laughs> He's saying your, your demand is just an expression of unbelief and I'm not going to play into your evil and wicked game. And then they lose the Lord. There's not really any more that can be said. And in, as if in this sign of divine judgment, he just leaves. He doesn't give them some rebuttal. He doesn't give them some teaching moments. He's just like, all right. He takes off. These religious zealots were physically so close to the Lord, but they'd never been further away where it really mattered. And that was in the condition of their hearts. So physically adjacent to their Lord and Savior, yet their hearts couldn't have been further away. They've lost him. And not long from now, they're going to crucify him. You see, this unbelief is evil and tragic when it says no to the gospel and God's Son. It's tragic when it rejects the gospel and the Son of God. 
Moving forward into verse eight, or 14 through 21, we see that the disciples will see great works, but they continue to fail to fully understand. They still cannot fully understand what they're seeing. You see, it's really easy to kind of poke at the Pharisees and their disbelief. And, you know, few of us really like the religious zealot, like the mean, evil guy in the story that keeps coming every time Jesus is doing miracles and questioning him and causing tension. Like, it's kind of like the evil villain of the story. It's really easy to to be frustrated and, and not like them. But the Pharisees weren't the only ones here that didn't understand what was happening, who had hardened hearts or who didn't spiritually see or hear However, unlike the unbelieving Pharisees who were moving in the wrong direction, away from Jesus, the disciples were making some progress. It was slow, it was arduous, but they were still heading in the right direction. They were trying, they were dense, right? They weren't quite getting it like Jesus would like, but at least their hearts were directed in the right way. So they get in the boat, and it says they've forgotten all of that bread that they had in these baskets, and they only had one loaf. Which is amazing. You have seven large baskets. Like you've just seen Jesus multiply this food, feed the multitudes, and then somebody just accidentally slips one loaf into their pocket and everything else is left behind. But that's a whole other thing. That's that's another sermon, maybe. Um, So they get into the boat. They just got this one. And they begin to discuss their predicament. And I think we've, we've seen enough of the interactions with the disciples now. Like, maybe you can think of yourself as a fly on the wall. Like, what would that interaction look like, right? Maybe they're like, you idiot, why didn't you bring this? They're placing blame and just normal, like, human interactions in a forgetful moment where maybe you're, you're placing blame, you're arguing. <clears throat> they failed to see the irony of the situation that they forgot who was in the boat with them and what he could do. Once again, like, we only have one loaf. What are we going to do? I don't know. The same thing you've seen happen two other times. Like, Jesus is going to deal with it, and you're okay, right? Like, they're forgetting again. So Jesus uses the visual aid that he had at hand there to teach them, and he cautions them. He says, watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. You see, because a small amount of yeast can infiltrate an entire batch of bread dough. And the leaven of unbelief had gripped the hearts of the Pharisees and the hearts of Herod and had taken control of their entire lives. This leaven of unbelief had just infiltrated their lives. And Jesus says, watch out. Don't let unbelief take you down and away from the divine truth that you see and hear in me. Don't let that same unbelief infiltrate your lives. Like, do you forget what we've been doing as we've been traveling around, what you've seen, and now you're going to squabble about us not having enough bread in this boat after I just fed 4,000 people? Like, don't let this stir up and build up in you guys. And, not surprisingly, they don't get it. (laughs) And they go back to talking about the bread. These guys just kill me, and then I see myself in them. They just go right back to talking about the bread. You see, Jesus is speaking about spiritual matters here, but they can't get over the mundane physical circumstances that they're confronted with. They're so stuck in the physical circumstances of the moment that they miss out on what he's trying to teach them in the bigger picture and the spiritual lesson that is to be taken here. So Jesus steps up with this series of questions. As we read through it, it's just rapid fire, right? And he says, why are you discussing that you don't have any bread? 
Don't you understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? Do you not have eyes to see? Do you not have ears to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets were left? And they're like, well, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of leftovers did you collect? And, and do you not understand? Do you still not understand? And it's like, apparently not. And he's trying to teach him. You see, these questions we can receive in our context is, gosh, why is Jesus shaming him? He's really like coming hard at him here. But this is not this moment of him trying to shame. He's simply trying to instruct. He's like, you guys, look at this. Have you not seen, remember all of these things and how they've lined up? And sometimes it can be frustrating to us because we're reading this. We know how the story ends. We're like, hey, you guys, like, come on, pick it up. You're with Jesus, right? Like, why, why are you so slow to pick this up? And family, I think sometimes we fail to realize that we are just as slow to pick it up. And then we make excuses. Well, I'm not walking with Jesus. And I say, I think that's a lie. I think you are because his Holy Spirit's in you. He's with you, empowering you. And as Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, it's better that I go so the Holy Spirit will be with you. So what excuse do we have? We can't dispel what they're going through and minimize it and say, oh, gosh, they're, they're just so slow. They're so dense because we're in a similar situation. And it often looks similarly as we walk out our faith. Like the 12 apostles, we often see our Lord's great work in our lives but fail to fully understand and trust him. We can still fail to fully trust him. And then this all kind of sums up here today in this last miracle where we see that the blind may see, but it might come gradually. The blind may see, but it might come gradually. At face value, this is a really interesting interaction, this miracle to me. Like if you just read through it, ah, that's, there's some things that don't quite compute there. I think it's worth looking at because I believe that this miracle isn't just for the physical eyes of the blind man, but it's for the spiritual eyes of the disciples and the onlookers. So listen to this through that lens. So while this account of healing the blind man does constitute a visual parable that's historically true, it also symbolizes this spiritual pilgrimage, if you will, that the disciples are going through. Their instruction, their coming into faith, coming into realization of who Jesus is. It's meant to portray the gradual, step-by-step -step understanding of the disciples. It parallels that, this side-by-side -side understanding of the disciples. Now, Jesus could have healed this man instantly, right? Like, he could have just said, hey, you're good. I mean, he healed people from a distance in previous weeks, and he's right there with this blind man. But the fact is, he, he simply is using this as a teaching moment. The disciples are slowly coming to see and understand Jesus as the Messiah. However, even after Peter's great confession that we discuss next week, they still have only partial sight and understanding of who he is. They have more sight and knowledge than they ever have before, but that's not fully restored. He's not the kind of Messiah that they expected, and realistically, only after the cross and the resurrection will they finally get it. So that is still to come. And they are just like this blind man who received his sight gradually. Have you ever felt that because something you're praying for in your life is unfolding gradually or, or different than you expected, that maybe it's because you're broken or you've done something to upset God? Have you ever had those feelings? Like, man, 
I've been praying for this, and I just don't see you working in that, God. Or I see you, like, teasing me with partial things of it, or that's how it feels. And, you, and then you start to turn that back on yourself. You're like, man, what did I do wrong? Am I just broken? Is God displeased with me? And you start to go through all these games because then the devil sees that, and he jumps in and piggybacks that and starts to tell you lies. Right? Have you ever felt that way, or is it just me? Right? We can go there. And I want to tell you that if you find yourself in this season of gradually just trying to see, get a sign of what God is doing, if you find yourself in a season of discouragement as to the fact of your understanding of situations and gaining spiritual understanding of what God's doing, take heart. Because we see here that Jesus cares and he sees you and he's passionate and he's patient, and he will teach you and lead you. And though some things roll out gradually over time, they may not all happen in some light switch moment where you're praying. It's like, okay, yep, I'll answer that one, I'll answer that one. And he just goes around choosing which one he's going to answer. Sometimes there's something that he needs to work out in us, work out of us, and work through us. And so these things happen a little more gradually. It's not because you're broken. It's because he cares enough to teach you more than you ever thought could happen in these situations. And we want this instant, like, fulfillment of our prayers or instant, like, answer to all these questions we have. And really, God wants to teach us at so much of a deeper level that he's going to take the time and the care and inject compassion and patience to walk us through something so that we can understand at a deeper heart level. He doesn't want you to just wrap your mind around things. He wants you to wrap your heart around things. And sometimes that takes some time to unfold that and to see how it plays out. And so we see these guys roll into Bethsaida, and immediately they bring this blind man to him. They bring this blind man to Jesus. They'd undoubtedly heard about him, and they knew what he was capable of, and they were hopeful for their friend. You see, we'll never be disappointed when we bring our friends to Jesus, and these guys didn't leave disappointed either. Do you think it was an easy journey for them? Like, we think about how easy it is for us to just travel across town. But these guys going by foot somewhere. Imagine a group of friends leading your blind friend through who knows what kind of terrain, who knows how far to get there, probably some uncomfortable, awkward situations, some tension, some conflict as you're leading your friend. We just got to get you to Jesus and whatever <laughs> obstacles might have been in the way. It was probably not the easiest journey that I ever made. It's not like, hey, get in, buckle up, I'm going to drive you there, right? Like, there was a journey to get this friend to the feet of Jesus, but they were not disappointed. They were not let down. And I assure you, anytime you put in the effort to go on the journey of bringing a friend to the feet of Jesus, you will not be disappointed. When you bring to people to Jesus to receive healing and restoration, he meets you in those moments. And we see how he interacts with this blind man. He's tender in his treatment, as he was with the deaf man in the last chapter. He took him by the hand, he led him away into privacy, and then he spit into his eyes and said, do you see anything? Do you see anything? Now, the Son of God did not expect complete healing at this point. He wasn't surprised when the guy's like, oh, basically, I see better than ever before, but not fully yet. You don't see Jesus saying, oh, man, what did I do wrong, right? He just simply goes on to the next step. He was not surprised. And then he proceeded to heal his eyes perfectly. Now, I alluded to this, but what is the significance of this? Why this partial healing? Why this step-by-step -step unfolding of this miraculous healing of this guy's eyes? 
you think this was a particularly difficult case for Jesus and it was just an unprecedented case of blindness and he prayed the wrong cure into it? Like, no. Who was this miracle for? It obviously benefited the man. He got his sight, right? Like, yeah, physically it benefited this man, but this was a moment of teaching and clarity for the disciples. Jesus is leading them to the point at which their sight would become much clear. And Peter would soon confess that he is the Christ. Like, this is what's coming up. But their spiritual understanding, if we've been wa- as we've been walking through this, we see is not one that's instantaneous, right? It's gradually unfolding. They're getting glimpses. They're learning. They're seeing more and more. And it's breaking through all their pre-existing expectations of who this Messiah was to be. And it's meeting at this intersection of who he actually is as he has come and dwelt amongst them. They, too, needed a second touch from their master. And like I said, this miracle is for the physical eyes of the blind man and the spiritual eyes of the disciples so that they too could have the eyes to see who Jesus was and what he was doing in their midst. And the fact that it accomplished both of these purposes was enough. It was enough. Worship team, if you guys can come back up. As we process through this, And the obvious fact that both the religious elite and the followers of Jesus were were struggling with having the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Like, all the people involved were struggling, right? It wasn't just one group of people. It was such a paradigm shift for all of them. It leads me to a place of praying that God would continuously soften my heart to receive what he wants to teach me, that he would give me the eyes to see and the ears to hear what he is doing in my midst, that he would give me the eyes to see all the preconceived expectations that I put on him that aren't the way that maybe he wants to do things, the ways I think he should do things, and I think I have my mind wrapped around it, but my heart's not connected to his to see what he's actually going to do or what he's going to work through something, maybe taking a, a different path or deviating from the way I think it should go. I pray that, like, God, soften my heart. Give me the eyes to see. Give me the ears to hear. Let me connect with your purpose at a heart level and see what you might do in our midst. And this morning, as I was going back through this message and just really praying through, this realization led me to a place of praise. We talked about that last week, right? How's your praise life going? How's your praise life? But it led me to a place of praise in response to his amazing grace. And even when I'm in such a mess in my mind and my eyes aren't seeing straight and I'm just not receiving what he would have for me right, that his grace still comes in and meets me there and leads me and cares for me and helps me to see and helps me to hear. And it led me to just singing this verse over and over again. And I'm going to sing it through twice. And I'm going to invite you guys to just sing this. That this would lead us to a place of just praising God. That he'd save a wretch like me. Like us. Where we once were lost, but now we're found. Blind, but now we see. And let those words sink in, not because we've heard them a million times. But because that's God's heart for you. Amen?
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Join in with me if you would. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind. But now I see. This was true for the blind man. It was true for the twelve. And it's true for you and me. Will you pray and praise with a posture of awe and amazement at the grace and mercy of our Lord? Will you rejoice as he brings clarity in your life and gives you the eyes to see? Will you remember what he has done in your past and allow that to lead you to trust him in your presence? Or in your present? God, we were once blind, but now we see. We were once lost, but now we are found by your amazing grace, and we thank you for that. Praise, glory, and honor be to you. Amen. Would you guys stand as we close in a song of worship?